Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University and author of the book How Fascism Works, who discusses the dark implications of the Trump-inspired violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Racial justice and labor activist Bill Fletcher Jr., who examines the central role of white supremacy in the violent movement surrounding Donald Trump that led to the terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. And Kika Matos, vice president of initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice, who talks about immigrant rights groups' agenda to quickly reverse Trump immigration policies under the incoming Biden administration. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On the eve of the next round of Afghan peace talks in Qatar, there's been a new wave of murders inside Afghanistan, targeting civil society leaders, including journalists and human rights activists. The Afghan government blames the killings on a special Taliban unit that they say is carrying out these assassinations to undermine public trust in the government and to eliminate critics of the Taliban's hardline interpretation of Islam. However, an alternate theory is that these murders, many not claimed by either the Taliban or ISIS militants, can be attributed to political factions and criminal gangs who would benefit from a breakup of the peace talks negotiating a ceasefire. According to the New York Times, at least 136 civilians and 168 members of the security forces have been assassinated in Afghanistan over the past year, making it one of the deadliest on record. As U.S. troops in Afghanistan will soon be reduced to 2,500 soldiers, the second round of peace talks in Qatar will focus on the Afghan government's goal to negotiate a ceasefire agreement while the Taliban seek a pact on the structure of a future government that reflects their strict interpretation of Islamic law. During the final days of the Trump administration, the Bureau of Land Management auctioned off oil leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR. In the 11th-hour auction opposed by environmentalists, only half of the oil and gas leases offered for sale received bids, and all but two of those came from the state of Alaska itself in a minimum bid offer of $25 an acre. Only two smaller oil companies made bids to acquire 10-year rights to explore and drill for oil on two tracts totaling about 75,000 acres, while leases on 400,000 other acres remained unsold. The leases sold could be revoked if they're not finalized before Joe Biden becomes president. Major oil companies didn't participate in the auction, and in response to pressure from environmentalists and some Alaska Native groups opposed to drilling, major U.S. banks had announced they would not finance oil development in the refuge. The incoming Biden administration has pledged to freeze oil leases on federal land. For decades, the refuge, most of it virtually pristine wilderness, had remained off-limits to oil development. But in 2017, the Republican majority in Congress opened up oil development in Anwar, seeking to cash in on sales of oil and gas leases worth $1.8 billion. 
but in December, the Bureau of Land Management removed 475,000 acres from the auction to protect the habitat of the porcupine caribou and other wildlife. Two years after 20,000 tech workers staged a walkout at Google in protest of how the company handled sexual harassment charges leveled at executives, more than 400 engineers and other workers have launched the Alphabet Workers Union to advocate for workers' concerns. The union, which is affiliated with the Communications Workers of America, will not engage in collective bargaining, but rather press Alphabet, Google's parent company, on issues of diversity, sexual harassment, and corporate ethics. Although tech giants like Apple and Microsoft are union-free workplaces, there is growing unrest among tech workers in Silicon Valley on a host of issues. Workers at Amazon, Salesforce, and Pinterest are becoming more vocal, demanding workers' rights. Thousands of Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama will vote on establishing a union in the coming months. The National Labor Relations Board ruled in December that Google had wrongly fired two employees who protested its handling of sexual harassment, its work with the Defense Department, and federal border agencies. Timnet Gebru a black woman and respected artificial intelligence researcher charged that Google had fired her after she criticized the company's approach to minority hiring and the biases built into AI systems. Her departure set off a storm of criticism about Google's treatment of minority employees. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Collectively, our nation just witnessed one of the darkest days in modern American history. The armed attack by thousands of Trump supporters on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th had one simple goal, to employ violence to prevent the certification of the 2020 presidential election winners, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and Trump's defeat. The assault by these domestic terrorists resulted in the deaths of five people, including a Capitol police officer. There are credible reports that some of the insurrectionists who attacked the seat of American democracy plan to take House members and senators hostage, with some of those right-wing vigilantes posting their plans on social media to execute those they captured, including hanging Vice President Mike Pence. The failure of law enforcement to prepare adequate security at the Capitol building in advance of the January 6th attack and to respond to the assault once it was underway has provoked grave questions about the inaction of Trump-appointed officials in charge. Weeks in advance, U.S. intelligence agencies were well aware that white supremacist right-wing extremist and militia groups were openly planning to smuggle firearms and other weapons into Washington to provoke violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Your reporter spoke with Jason Stanley, the Jacob Orwowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and author of the book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Here, Professor Stanley examines the roots of the violent January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and the ongoing threat posed to U.S. democracy by Trump loyalists and elements of the Republican Party that have embraced white supremacy 
in authoritarianism. We see the results of the violent rhetoric that President Trump has indulged in since he announced his run for office in summer 2015. Uh, The way he speaks of his political opponents incites among his supporters extreme uh, violence. It's violent rhetoric that represents his opponents as traitors, as enemies, and it seems like a game until it isn't. Uh, Again and again, history teaches us this. Uh, the propag- the violent propaganda and rhetoric seems like a game. It just you get used to it, and suddenly you realize there's a group of people taking it seriously, and we've witnessed that yet again. Uh, I'm guessing that it could have been much worse than it in fact was. It could have also been much better if there had been advanced planning, if there had been the kind of planning that there would have been had this been a Black Lives Matter protest or Occupy Wall Street obviously much more peaceful events. But as Alex Vital pointed out the other day in a piece, uh, when it's white nationalists and far right, the police and law enforcement do not plan on violence. And when it's leftists or black Americans protesting police brutality, they expect much greater violence than there is. We have seen years and years of rhetoric portraying Trump's political opponents minorities and immigrants as well as fundamental enemies of the people. And this rhetoric takes a long time to crystallize into action. So we're seeing now the action. Professor Stanley, people all across this country on the left and right honor the First Amendment, free speech. Yet we have several media outlets in this country. We're talking about Fox News, One American News Network, OAN, Newsmax, and host of social media sites that not only propagate lies, but incite violence. And we saw that culmination of violence on Capitol Hill on January 6th. The First Amendment was never meant to be a suicide pact, but we have to be careful. What do you think we need to do as a nation to rein in and suppress those voices out there that are calling for violence and overthrow of our government? So let's be clear. In John Stuart Mill's defense of free speech in On Liberty, one of the great documents of philosophy, uh, he argues that uh, that we should allow full free speech on the assumption that there are social sanctions when uh, the powerful use speech against uh, le- less powerful people, against the powerless. He's assuming that society punishes those who speak, uh, who use words in violence and dangerous ways. You know, it's long been known that free speech is both a pillar of democracy and also a poison pill of democracy. Plato points this out 2,300 years ago in Book 8 of the Republic. He says, democracy will lead straight to tyranny because democracy allows free speech, and a tyrant will come and present himself as the protector of some group of people who who he represents as a mortal danger. And he will split the nation, representing himself as the nation's protector, and then come to power and end democracy. So this is exactly what we've seen. We've, we've, we, see that we have seen Plato's prediction uh, come to fruition, uh, which, which we will always see uh, if we don't have some kind of societal protection. So this is a philosophical problem with democracy. It doesn't mean we can give up democracy or free speech, but it means that we have to recognize that the situation we face is a situation that faces democracy as a system. And so 
We have to be aware of it. We have to we have to deal with it. I think in the way that Mills suggested by making sure that when we, have, when we have politicians engaging in the kind of insurrectionist rhetoric that, say, Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz did, and many, many representatives, that they face consequences, social consequences, possibly other consequences as well. That was Jason Stanley, Yale University professor of philosophy and author of the book How Fascism Works. Find more analysis and commentary on the Trump regime's and Republican Party's attack on democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by a violent mob, provoked by blatant lies about a stolen election spread by President Trump and Republican lawmakers, claimed the lives of five, including a Capitol police officer. In the aftermath of law enforcement's complete failure to protect the Capitol, House Democrats were briefed by Capitol Police about several newly uncovered terrorist plots to overthrow the government, including a plan to surround the Capitol, the White House and Supreme Court, and murder Democrats, allowing Republicans to take control of the government. Additionally, the FBI has sent a memo to law enforcement agencies across the country warning of possible armed protests at all 50 state capitals starting on January 16th. The Trump supporters who invaded the halls of Congress on January 6th displayed racist and anti-Semitic messages and symbols on banners, t-shirts, and by flying the Confederate flag. Long before Donald Trump entered politics, the Republican Party embraced white supremacy and authoritarianism, cultivating a hateful and racist support base whose common cause is the repression of communities of color and the subversion of democracy through voter suppression, gerrymandering, and voter purges targeting black and brown Americans. Your reporter spoke with Bill Fletcher, Jr., executive editor with a global African worker, former president of TransAfrica Forum, and a former senior staff person with the national AFL-CIO. Here he examines the central role white supremacy plays in the violent movement surrounding Donald Trump that led to the terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. It was a coup attempt. Uh, Trump was complicit, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when I hear these Republicans talking about freedom of speech, that, uh, that all Trump did was uh, encourage people to protest, um, I think that that is uh, sophistry. Uh, the reality is that the President of the United States began tweeting a while ago about January 6th and emphasized that it was going to be wild. His intelligence apparatus knew that the right wing, uh, these uh, fascists, were uh, planning not simply marches, but were planning on smuggling weapons into Washington, D.C., and we're discussing the issue of an assault on Congress. Had uh, Trump been a reasonable person, even a conservative, a reasonable conservative, he would have made it clear in everything leading up to January 6th that he was disowning any attempt at violence, and he would have been mobilizing all available forces to ensure that nothing happened. He did nothing of the kind. Uh, he incited the crowd. Uh, and, and in traditional 
opportunistic fashion, promised the crowd that he was going to march with them to the, uh, the Capitol, and then didn't do it, uh, showing you know the kind of cowardice that he actually has. Uh, this was um, a despicable act, but completely predictable. Uh, and this is one of the things that infuriates me about many liberals and progressives, that through much of 2020, there was a level of denial of the uh, rabidity of the Trump administration and the potential for a, uh, an insane coup. Um, there were, unfortunately, those that thought that there was no difference between Trump and Biden, uh, at least until the beginning of September, when a lot of people started realizing what was at stake. Um, and, but I think that many progressives made a terrible mistake in not understanding that it wasn't Trump versus Biden. It was people in favor of democracy versus a right-wing populist movement within which there is a neo-fascist core. Thank you for that, Bill. The next important thing we're dealing with as a nation is how we should address the rise of an extremist white supremacist violent movement that appears to have been inspired by Donald Trump's racism and xenophobia, but has a longer history than that, of course, going back to Nixon and Reagan and the Southern strategy. Mm -hmm. And further, it appears right now that these militia, vigilante, proud boys, oath keepers, these armed groups seem to be an armed wing of the Republican Party. Um, I would say that they need to be crushed. Now, the armed wing is less the armed wing of the Republican Party. It's the armed wing of the right-wing populist movement. Um, and and this, it's the armed wing of that monster that has been built. And within that, there are those that are absolutely fascist. And there's different kinds of fascists. And I don't use that term loosely. It's not, I'm not using that term just simply as a smear. These are people that are looking for the radical restructuring of the United States in order for a pure white capitalism to reemerge on the ashes of what is left. This, these are people that are seeking an apocalypse. Um, some of them have religious motives, others genocidal, absolutely. Um, but their, their critical image is what I would call a neo-Confederate image. They want a modern version of the Confederate States of America, a modern version of apartheid South Africa. Some of them are prepared to make peace with some level, some elements of people of color, as long as those people of color are willing to swear allegiance to the white republic um, or to try to pretend that they themselves are white. That's what we're looking at. They wish to start a war, civil war, and I think they have to be crushed. I don't think that there is negotiating room with fascists. I think you can negotiate with conservatives, liberals, etc. There is no room to negotiate with fascists. Fascists aren't interested in negotiations. They're interested in our destruction. So we have to make sure that they are eliminated. And I'm suggesting that in a legal and nonviolent way, they need to be blocked. Their organizations need to be destroyed, driven bankrupt. They need to be put into jail. Anyone that was associated with what happened on January 6th needs to be incarcerated.
And there needs to be very serious, serious charges brought against these people. That was racial justice labor activist and author Bill Fletcher, Jr. Learn more about Donald Trump and the Republican Party's relationship with white supremacy and authoritarianism by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. When Joe Biden takes office on January 20th as the 46th president of the United States, he'll immediately face an avalanche of demands from groups whose priorities have been ignored or aggressively thwarted by the Trump regime. Those issues include immigrant rights, the climate crisis, racial justice, universal health care, and more. Like other groups, national immigration rights organizations have developed both short- and longer-term reform proposals and new initiatives for the executive and legislative branches to take up. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus recently attended a virtual presentation by Kika Matos, vice president of initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice, which is one of the groups across the U.S. advocating for immigration reform. Here she explains some of the proposals and cautions that even though President-elect Biden has supported several of these goals, and both houses of Congress are nominally controlled by Democrats, it will still be a very uphill fight to win a path to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. But let me quickly distill some of the key recommendations, both for the 100 days and then in the longer term. So among the most common uh, 100-day recommendations are to reverse or rescind every single Trump-era anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policy effectuated, to overhaul the immigration enforcement system, to issue a moratorium on deportations and enforcement, to expand DACA and to uh, restore temporary protected status to the countries where it was uh, repealed, And finally, in the context of COVID, 100-day recommendations also include providing economic relief and recovery for immigrants. We know that they were left out uh, for the most part, uh, and they still have been left out um, under this this latest wave of relief. Uh, In terms of the Biden bill, it's really interesting that advocates have been very uh, restrained and very clear in their demands about what should be in this bill. The biggest demand is legalization that puts the 11 million on a path to citizenship. No trade-offs and no enforcement. If I were to distill what people most want in in the Biden bill, it is these three uh, sets of things. Uh, Longer-term goals that advocates are pushing for include uh, establishing a federal defender system that provides a free legal representation for any immigrant facing deportation, the creation of deportation protection, uh, a deportation protection program for millions, dismantling the enforcement machinery, and significantly reducing the funding to ICE and to Customs and Border Protection because their budgets are disgustingly overbloated. Uh, people in the longer term also want to reduce the backlog of, of removal cases that are currently before 
the immigration courts and they're really pushing for either administrative closure or dismissal basically saying you really need to close a lot of this, these cases and dismiss a lot of these cases um, people want to end uh, the 287g program and any state and local entanglements affiliations uh, between criminal and immigration enforcement systems and finally, people really, really are pushing to drastically shrink the immigration detention system. Some organizations like the Euro are actually pushing for the complete closure of immigration detention um, centers all over the U.S. Our belief is that we have no business incarcerating people who, who want to live uh, in, the, in the United States. Uh, some left of center demands also include allowing those who have been deported uh, to return to the United States. I've laid out what the Biden administration uh, has left us. I've laid out the goals um, and the strategies of the national advocates. And now I feel like I have, a, I, I have a duty to provide you with some analysis. What is actually likely to move forward? Uh, here's the current state of play. We have a Democratic White House. Uh, the Senate is now in the hands of Democrats. Um, the House remains in Democratic control, although we have a significantly smaller majority than we did in 2018. Um, and the Biden administration has nominated Alejandro Mayorkas to be the DHS secretary. Uh, he is uh, thankfully a friend and, and an ally of the immigrant community, and he has experience already uh, working in uh, the federal government level. Um, despite this, right, I've laid out, you know, a, a, a sliver of promise. Um, but despite the landscape, the consensus is that efforts to pass um, significant immigration legislation are going to be really difficult and really challenging. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there will be legislative movement really quickly on a number of fronts. So what we should expect in the coming weeks uh, are a bunch of bills and resolutions that will be introduced, and I'll cite just a few. Uh, Congresswoman Jayapal is likely to introduce a Roadmap to Freedom resolution uh, that, that will encapsulate most of the proposals I just described from um, national advocates. Uh, there are also likely to be a number of immigration proposals from the Congressional Hispanic uh, Caucus and other members of Congress. Uh, Pelosi committed to passing uh, DREAM Act uh, legislation. The initial legislative play is likely to build on those already passed in the 116th Congress to win a pact to legalization for DACA youth, uh, DP TPS holders, temporary protected status holders, and farm workers. Um, I lift two in particular, H.R. 6, which is the DREAM and Promise Act, and H.R. 5038, which is the Farm Worker Modernization Act. Uh, together, these bills would provide a path for approximately 3.5 million people. Uh, each of these bills uh, passed uh, in the 116th Congress with bipartisan uh, votes and have the potential to move quickly through the House and to get packaged for Senate consideration. That was Kika Matos, Vice President of Initiatives at the Vera Institute of Justice. Learn more about the post-election immigrant rights reform agenda by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KOZO in Knoxville, Tennessee, KRBX in Boise, Idaho, KODX in Seattle, Washington, and dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>